You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with marketing and PR expert David Meerman Scott. David is a well known keynote speaker, author of 10 books, three of which are international bestsellers, an advisor and board member for large, successful organizations such as HubSpot, and is a strategic partner at a venture capital firm. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I'm excited to have David Meerman Scott with me today. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, great to be here, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on. Talk to us a bit about your background and your story. How'd you get to where you are today? So I got out of school and I thought I wanted to be a bond trader. So I got a job on Wall Street on a bond trading desk at Dean Witter and I hated it. I hated people yelling in the phones and windowless offices, and it just wasn't my thing. But I really loved the information behind the bond trading that that people were using, companies like Dow Jones and Reuters providing that information. So I went to work in the real-time financial information business, and I did that for about 15 years. I was based mainly in Asia, seven years in Tokyo, two years in Hong Kong, and then came back and worked for a couple of years in the Boston area, all of it in the financial information business, most recently at a company called Thomson Reuters. And they fired me in 2002. And then I started doing my own thing, writing and speaking all over the world. I've now delivered presentations in over 40 countries, all seven continents. I've got uh, several best-selling books as well. And it makes for a fun life to I think of myself as having been unemployed for 17 years. So that's kind of fun. (laughs) Unemployed for 17 years, but still living by your wit. Yeah, it seems like a lot of successful entrepreneurs have kind of been pushed into it, you know, from being fired from a position that they were enjoying at the time and, and they got a push from that and have gone on to build successful businesses. Well, that worked for me because. I thought I wanted to be, at the time I was vice president of marketing for this company, I thought I wanted to do that again, but it was right after 9-11. It was in early 2002, and there were no jobs for vice presidents of marketing at that point. So I, I had to figure it out for myself. So it was, I always say it was the best career move I ever made to get fired. Why should someone who's looking to start their own side hustle or startup, why should they be interested in marketing? So ultimately, all of us are marketers because we have to market ourselves. We have to market, if we start a project, we have to market that project. For example, when I write a book, every time I write, bring out a new book, there's a separate marketing plan to get that new book out. If you're starting a new company, you have to have marketing in order to get the word out. And so I think that an understanding of the basics of how marketing works, as well as the tremendous number of pitfalls that are out there, can be a fabulous, fabulous thing for young entrepreneurs to know. I mean, geez, I wish I knew it when I was just getting started. There's so many things that 
people do wrong because they feel like they know what marketing is. And I'll just give you one example. A lot of people think that marketing and advertising are the same thing. They're not. Advertising is spending money to get yourself on somebody else's channel, whether that's television, radio, magazines, websites, email lists, whatever it is, podcasts even. Whereas marketing is understanding who it is you're trying to reach and what is an efficient way to reach them. So for someone who's new at this, whether it be building a brand or marketing, where should someone start? So what I think is really important is for everybody to have a presence on the web for themselves. And I'm talking specifically outside of the social networks. I still think it's important to have a presence on the social networks, whether that's LinkedIn or Twitter or or Facebook or Instagram or some combination of them or other social networks. Those are still important, but I think it's essential for all entrepreneurs and for all people who are entrepreneurial, even if you're working for a company, to have a presence that on real estate that you own. What I mean by that is a URL that whether that's a podcast like you're doing now, Robert, a blog or a website or some kind of presence that you have the ownership over that real estate. Because ultimately, the social networks, again, there's nothing wrong with them. And I think people should participate in them. I certainly do. But you don't control that social network, even though it's your feed on there. You can control your own blog or podcast or other form of content that you create yourself. And I mean, if you're relying solely on those social media platforms, if any of them ever change their algorithms or if they ever change any of the rules they have, or if they just have any outages or usage you know, issues, essentially your whole business is going down. And I've heard a lot of stories about influencers who have built their businesses on the back of, say, Instagram, and then Instagram you know, had some outages or whatever the issue may be. And now their whole business is, is out of whack. So having, you need to be able to have your own business on the web and have your own website where you can collect leads and have that one-on-one relationship with your customers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, some social networks have completely disappeared. For example, Google Plus had 50 million members at one point. It no longer exists. Imagine if you created your, your whole business on Google Plus. Also, some businesses rely on the social networks for the vast majority of their traffic. For example, there have been travel sites that have focused on getting traffic from Google. Then all Google does is change their algorithm to benefit their own travel-related services. And all of a sudden, those companies are completely out of business because their traffic goes from decreases by 99%. There was a popular social media platform called Vine that went under and a lot of people had built their personal brand on that platform. And so when it went under, their whole business went under. Some people are still doing well today because they were able to translate their brand to the new social media platforms. But there's a lot of people that completely lost their business, completely lost their personal brand when Vine went under. That's right. That's exactly right. So that's why I think everybody needs to have their own presence. So that ultimately you've got, it's just like owning a home versus renting. And once you have that home that you own, pay your taxes, you're there. So once you have that URL that you own, that website that you own, as long as you pay the annual fee, 
to keep it going, you own that. So in a world where these types of websites and digital landscape is just so competitive, how can someone really stand out from all of the different competition? You know, one of the things that I focus on so much recently is the subject of my newest book, which is called Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans, which I've been studying this idea of fandom for the past five years, together with my millennial-aged daughter, Reiko, she's now 26. Two of us co-wrote this book. And what we looked at was, first of all, fandom. This idea of fandom, this idea of things that people are a fan of, is a fabulous way for people to differentiate how they are putting products and services out there. So what most organizations do is they focus on their products and services. Here, we have this thing. It's better, faster, cheaper, whatever than everybody else. But when you focus on fans, you're focusing on a true human connection. You're focusing on what's really interesting to the buyers rather than what's interesting to you. And you're developing fans along the way. So we learned that fandom is not just for entertainers like Harry Potter, for example, or music such as The Grateful Dead. But, but the idea of fandom can be for anybody. I mean, people are fans of your podcast, Robert. And that gets word of mouth that drives people to you. People can become fans of any organization or any person or any product or service. And that's the ultimate. That really drives things to you. And that's a very different way of doing business than the traditional way of looking at the competition and doing something slightly better, whether that's a slightly better price or a slightly better product or a slightly faster or slightly shinier or whatever it might be. So how do we go about building those, those fans rather than just customers? I think one of the most important things around fandom that when we did the research, we talked to thousands of people, is that fandom is about a true human connection. It's about having a relationship with people that's incredibly powerful because it's a true human connection. And I think that we found something interesting in that we interviewed a bunch of different neuroscientists about fandom and how and why people become fans. And there's some, one aspect of neuroscience that I found fascinating. It's the idea of proximity. And the idea of proximity is the closer we humans get to another human, the more powerful the shared emotions. So that if we know and trust somebody and we get physically close to them, that's a very powerful human connection. But if we don't know and trust someone we get close to them, that can be a negative human emotion. For example, when you get into a crowded elevator, you can feel a negative emotion. When you're in a room with your friends, you feel a very positive emotion. And it's actually quantifiable. One neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall quantified it based on the levels of proximity, 20 feet or further, meaning public space, with four feet to 20 feet being social space, inside of four feet being personal space, the closer you get, the more powerful the human emotion. So as a business person, can you bring your customers in close proximity with you? Can you bring your customers in close proximity with each other? 
because that's those strong human connections. But there's another aspect that's interesting, and that is the idea of mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are the parts of our brain that fire when we see someone do something as if we're doing it ourselves. And this is incredibly powerful for building true human connection in a virtual way. So I want to demonstrate this to you, Robert. I'm holding a lemon in one hand. I'm holding a slice of lemon in my other hand. And if I take a bite of the slice of lemon, I can immediately feel that tartness on my tongue. I can feel the saliva immediately beginning to do its thing. My eyes close and my mouth puckers up from that, from that lemon. And it's really powerful. It, my brain is firing. But I would suggest probably by seeing that, Robert, your brain might be firing too. And even by just me talking about biting into a lemon, people listening in can feel that lemon perhaps a little bit on their tongue as well. That's through mirror neurons. So when you look at somebody in a movie theater on the screen, you feel like you know them. You've never met them, but your mirror neurons are kicking in. So here's what this means for entrepreneurs. What it means is if you can have virtual connections with people by using effectively photographs and videos on your websites, through your social networks, for example, having connections with people through Zoom rather than just telephone or text where you can actually see people, that's a powerful connection because your brain tells you you're in the same room with them even though you're not. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? 
lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. What makes this idea of building fans so powerful? And how many businesses are actually implementing this strategy? What we found is that this idea of human connection is fabulously powerful. And it's really, really rare in the business world. And other forms of connection are things like understanding deeply the people that you're trying to reach. And again, this is something that a lot of organizations don't do because they focus so much time and attention on just their products and not on the people that they're trying to reach. So I think that there's lots of different ways to do that. We have nine different steps in the book, but I'd like to illustrate just one. We have a concept around give more than you have to. The idea of giving gifts to the people that you're trying to build fans of. Giving gifts with no expectation of anything in return. And the reason we came up with this idea is I think about The Grateful Dead, my favorite band. The Grateful Dead is the only band that regularly allowed their fans to record their concerts, which is really interesting because every other band said, no, you can't record our concerts. The Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? You can record. They can even bring professional level recording gear in to record concerts. This created, this gift of the ability to create, to record concerts allowed Grateful Dead fans to then have these tapes, originally cassette tapes, later MP3 files, that they could trade with their friends or they could give away to their friends as gifts. And that helped to grow their fandom all over the world because people were exposed to their music for free. I'll give you another example. Typically in the B2B world, but also many consumer companies provide free content in the form of, say, an ebook or a white paper or some other form of content, yet they put the requirement of an email address in order to get that free content. But that's not giving away free content. That's setting up an adversarial relationship. So What's much better is to make that free content totally free with no registration required at all. In other words, giving a gift with no expectation of anything in return. How can any business grow fans? And one of my favorite examples is an insurance company, an auto insurance company. I don't know about you, Robert, but whenever I ask people, do you love auto insurance? The answer is always no way, man. I hate auto insurance. You hate buying auto insurance and everybody hates having to use that product because it meant you crashed your car. So we spoke with McKeel Haggerty. He's the CEO of a company called Haggerty Insurance. They're an auto insurance company and he's built a massive fan base. He recognized that he couldn't just go out and sell auto insurance the way everybody else did because it's a product everybody hates. You know, he doesn't want to just compete on price or spend a whole lot of money on advertising. 
you know, there's an, another auto insurance company that advertises using lizards or geckos or something or other. Uh, Mikhail Haggerty said, no, I'm going to build fans. He insures classic cars. That's the niche he decided to pursue. So he goes to over a thousand classic car shows a year. He goes to those classic car shows and meets with fans. He provides valuable information. He and his team, of course, not just him. They have valuation reports about how much your classic car is worth and graphs of how much it's worth over time. They have a YouTube channel with a million followers on it. They have 650,000 members of their driver's club. And all of these things are what they use to build fans. So I've got a 1973 Land Rover. I'm really into alternative investments as a personal investor myself, and I've got a classic Land Rover. And that Land Rover is insured by Haggerty. And I'm so excited when I have an opportunity to, to pay my insurance bill because I really like Haggerty. I want to go into your alternative investments later in the show. But before we do, let's, let's talk more about this fanocracy idea. Is this where the future of business brand building and business marketing is going? Do you think the historical norms for marketing is going to go away or at least not be as common? And then this is really going to be the idea that most businesses turn towards? Here's what I think in a really big picture. For thousands of years, the way that we humans conducted business was personally. You know, you would go to the town square. You know, this is like even back to Roman days, Egyptian days. You would go to the town square and, you know, you would meet with the person who sells you chickens and you would buy a couple of chickens. And you got to know that person and it was a human connection. The last hundred years or so, has really developed a marketplace where we're far away from the many of the human connections that we had enjoyed, that our grandparents had enjoyed. And buying things online, using social networks, all of these things are fairly cold and polarizing. And I'm not saying that this is going away. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that most humans are hardwired to enjoy human connection. So anytime an organization can cultivate that human connection, that becomes an incredibly powerful way to differentiate. I think that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when people are hungry for a true human connection. So I don't know that it's going to be the norm. I actually don't think it's going to become the norm. But I think it's going to be an unfair advantage for those organizations that do develop fans. Because once you have a tribe of people who love you, once you have a group of fans who think that you're amazing, that is a fabulous asset that you can use forever to help with your business. But if you're just trying day in and day out for yet another transaction, that's a really hard business model to sustain. And besides, I don't think it would be as much fun as having a set of fans. For someone who's listening to this and is going to try to implement this strategy, what are some of the pitfalls that they need to look out for? So I think one of the most important pitfalls that many people fall into is they fall in love with their products and services. 
they believe that the thing that they're doing is so important and they just imagine that everyone else thinks it's fabulously important too. And I think that once you're focused on how important your products and services are, it makes it much, much harder to understand with empathy the problems that your buyers face and how you solve problems for those buyers. So ultimately, to avoid that pitfall, your challenge becomes, how can you understand the world through the eyes of the people who are buying your products and services, but also the people that you are cultivating to become your fan? Because you may end up having fans who actually aren't your customers. And I'll give you an example of that. I've been on the advisory board of a company called HubSpot since the beginning, since 2007. And HubSpot has an annual conference called Inbound. And what's really cool about Inbound is you don't have to be a customer to go to the Inbound conference. And in fact, they have you know, 25,000 people who go to that conference every year. It's held in Boston. And they love going to that conference. I'm going to guess, I don't know the number, but just a wild guess that half of the people who are there are not even their customers. They're their fans. They're fans of HubSpot. They're fans of the marketing education that HubSpot provides. And HubSpot Academy provides free training and marketing to people. And people love that. So maybe they're not a customer today, but they might be next year or the year after or five years from now or 10 years from now because HubSpot is building that fandom for the long term. But if we're just selling a product or service, those people wouldn't be their fans. So that's, a, that's the biggest pitfall I see. So when someone is going to implement this type of strategy, do they need to hire a marketing consultant or a digital marketing agency? Or is this something that they can do themselves as the founder or as like maybe their chief marketing officer? Is this something they can do themselves? I think everything that we've been talking about so far on the show and everything that I write in the book, Fanocracy, everything is something that you can do on your own. There's no question about it. That's always been the style of marketing I prefer. And I think that there's always room to get help. I mean, I'll just look at myself as an example. I consider myself an entrepreneur. I'm a solopreneur, though. I, I run a company of one person. However, I have lots of people who help me that I pay. I have a video team that I have that helps me. I have people who are very skilled at creating website design who help me. I have people who do graphic design who help me. And I have people who edit words. I, I write, but they're editors. And all of those people help me do the things that I'm not very good at. And, and so I think that there's always room for entrepreneurs to hire people to do the parts that they're not very good at. I think it can often be a mistake to try to outsource all of your marketing top to bottom because number one, you don't really know what's going on. And number two, it's fabulously expensive to do that. So especially if you're an entrepreneur getting started. Bigger companies, you know, there's room for hiring agencies that, you know, can be good full service agencies that may charge a lot of money if you can afford it. 
But I think in general, the things that I've been talking about, growing fans for your business, creating a great web presence, understanding your buyers, all of those things are things that an entrepreneur ought to be doing themselves. And then they should outsource the things that they're not as good at. Speaking of digital marketing agencies and you being a marketing expert, I'm curious to get your opinion on Gary Vaynerchuk's marketing strategy of where he just recommends just producing a ton of content, where he he recently said that people should be producing upwards of 100 different pieces of content every day across social media platforms. I'm curious to hear what you think about this strategy and do you think this is the best way to use content marketing? I don't know that an, that an absolute number is what I would focus on. I think what I would focus on is figuring out what are the important things that you can share that has value to the people you're trying to reach. I've never really thought of how much content I create, if you think of it as individual pieces, but I do a lot of content myself and I'm one person and I'm trying to do a lot of different things throughout the day. The way that I look at content creation is that I don't think of it as big chunks of my day. I don't say, oh, now I'm going to spend two hours on content. I think of it in tiny little chunks. So, you know, when we were about to start this podcast, I was at my desk about, I don't know, eight minutes before you and I started to speak. That was enough time for me to jump onto LinkedIn and see if anybody had commented on my recent post. And in fact, people did. So I replied to two or three people. So in less than seven minutes, I created three pieces of content. If you decide that replying to three different people who commented on one of my my LinkedIn posts is creating a piece of content. I'm not sure how many tweets I did today, probably 20 maybe. And so, you know, that's something else is really easy to create a tweet, to do a retweet. Also today I did one blog post. I'm not near a hundred. But I'm certainly probably as many as 30 or 40 or 50 pieces of content in a day. So I do think that entrepreneurs should be creating content. It actually goes back to what I said originally. You should have some content at least on your own real estate. And you should be using the social networks to drive people back to your own real estate. So an example in my case is this morning I wrote a blog post. But then I went on the social networks, including LinkedIn and Twitter, and created a tweet and a LinkedIn post that pointed people back to my own website where my blog post was living. And then I had other people comment on Twitter that they had seen my post, which I replied to. Other people commented on my LinkedIn post, which I replied to. So it's all kind of an ecosystem of little pieces of micro content, all of them pointing to my own real estate. Yeah, when you break it down that way with every tweet or every comment on LinkedIn counting as a piece of content, the 100 pieces of content doesn't seem as big. I'm not sure how Gary is counting, but certainly, and again, I run a one-person business, but imagine doing 100 YouTube videos. Um, That's a a lot different. That's hard. (laughs) But if you're running a company like HubSpot, which has 3,000 employees or whatever they have, I mean, I bet they do 100 pieces of content in the first 10 minutes that you know, 10 minutes of the day if you average it out over all the people work there. So it's really all a bit of relativity. And there's no question I agree with Gary that content is fabulously important. I've been talking about that for 20 years now. 
this idea of content is incredibly important. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. How can someone who's just pushing out a ton of content, how can they get over the mental hurdle or just the dynamic of putting out a ton of content and not seeing the instant results? You know, a lot of the platforms we have now, we can run paid ads and a lot of times those results can be quick. Whereas, but that can get expensive and it's sometimes hard to scale if you're a startup or a small business. So, how can somebody who's just pushing out a ton of content for their startup or their side hustle understand that that takes time and they're not going to see instant results? One thing that I would consider that people look at is don't think of the, of the goal as selling your product or service, but think of the goal as developing fans. So that's how I think of it many times is 
I've been, um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I've been on my own for 17 years. I've been running my own business for 17 years. And so for 17 years, I've been thinking of what I primarily do is create content in order to build fans. And therefore, when I have something that I'm ready to talk about that I want people to buy, perhaps a book like Fanocracy, which we're talking about today, then I've already got a a lot of people who know me and a lot of people who might want to talk about my ideas. And that's a lot easier to think about building fans as your primary job. And then once you have that fan base, then you've got an asset that you can use whenever you have something that you want to sell. So in other words, just having transactions where you're selling something and getting some money in return, that's a hard thing to sustain no matter what kind of service it is. But developing a tribe of people who rely on you, who think you're a valuable part of their life, no matter what you do, that becomes something that if you can maintain that trust with them, if you can maintain that value with them, they're going to be with you for the long haul. They're going to buy whatever you've got. They're going to re-up and resubscribe to whatever you're doing. And that becomes incredibly powerful. But I think it's rare today that people look to build something for the long term. So many people are basing their business on uh, simply on a transaction. All of this talk about content marketing and just marketing in general has been super helpful. But you mentioned before that you've done some alternative investing So I want to go into that a little bit now and talk about that. Can you talk to us a bit about your strategy, some of the things you've been investing in, and just explain to us about what you're doing there? Sure, absolutely. So I mentioned at the top of the show that I started my career on the bond trading desk. And I I, I got my Series 7, Series 63, the various brokers licenses that you get when you're on a bond trading desk. And I tried to learn as much as I can. So I did learn quite a bit about investing. And I really enjoy, very much enjoy thinking of my whole wide portfolio as a bunch of different assets that I can own that add up to a a unified whole. And one of the first things I did, one of the first financial moves I made was when I was in my late 20s. And I bought my vacation house before I bought my primary residence. And I tell this to all the young people I meet, and nobody has yet taken me up on this challenge of you should buy your vacation property before you buy your primary residence. Um, The reason that I think that this is such a fabulous strategy is that if you buy a vacation house, you've got an asset that you can rent when you're not using it. You've got an asset that you can enjoy for a few weeks or a few months out of the year, depending on where that vacation house is. And you've got something that you can own at a young age and enjoy for a long period of time, whereas most people tend to buy their vacation house older. So I was in my late 20s, I bought a house on Nantucket Island. And it's now 20 seven years after I bought that house, and I still own it. And I've had 27 wonderful summers in that house since I bought it. 
My daughter's now 26 years old. She spent her whole life growing up in that house. That house has increased in value fivefold since I bought it, worth five times what I paid for it. And yeah, it took a little bit more time for me to raise enough money for the down payment on a primary residence. I rented a little bit longer than most people probably do. I didn't buy my primary residence until I was 35 years old. But the idea of buying that vacation house first is an idea that all millennial investors should be thinking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm actually pretty involved with the real estate space. And actually here over the next month or so, I'm going to be launching a second podcast that's all about real estate. And as a real estate investor myself, that definitely is a strategy that that interests me. And I really haven't given it much thought. But nowadays, I think that's even a better strategy because of Airbnb. With Airbnb, I mean, if you're buying a vacation rental, it's probably in a vacation destination for most people. And so that's where you're going to get the best Airbnb rates. And so you could probably earn a pretty hefty return with Airbnb rental while you're not there. Exactly. And I, I think the point here is that this becomes not only an investment, but it becomes something you can enjoy. Yeah, you can buy a rental property and have somebody in it 12 months out of the year, and it's simply a rental property. But when you have a vacation property, and it's something you can enjoy, and you can still generate the income, that's amazing. We rented our house for 25 years. My wife and I rented this house for 25 years and used it ourselves. About three years ago, we stopped renting it for a variety of reasons, just didn't need the rental income anymore. And we wanted to make it more of our own and not have to worry about the whole rental thing. So we stopped renting it. A couple of other alternative investments that I've enjoyed. I I always think of, is there something that I can buy that's an investment that I can also enjoy? You know, because to me, the blips on a screen, you know, a certain amount of financial assets that I own, you know, some zeros somewhere indicating I own a stock or a bond or a part of a mutual fund or whatever it is, that's not as interesting to me as owning something that I can use and enjoy like that vacation property. I've owned a classic car for a couple of decades, which I love. It's a 1973 Land Rover. I mentioned it earlier. And that's, I think of that as an investment. It doesn't go up in value very strongly, but it constantly increases in value slowly, but it's something I can enjoy. The biggest in alternative investment that I own, however, is I have one of the largest collections in the world in private hands of artifacts from the Apollo Lunar Program. So I actually have items that have flown to the surface of the moon and were used by the Apollo astronauts. I have checklists that were used on the surface of the moon. I own the rotational control handle that was used on Apollo 12. And this type of alternative investment, a collectible, it rewards knowledge. The reason I say it rewards knowledge is because the more you understand about the collectible that you are interested in, the more you can recognize when there's something that's got a good price that you can potentially buy, and the more you recognize when it might be the right time to sell. What kind of investment returns are you seeing from your alternative investments? So I've owned one classic car, never sold it. I've owned one vacation property, never sold it. I've seen the theoretical value of both because I haven't sold it. So, But my vacation house is worth five times what I paid for it. The Land Rover is probably worth double what I paid for it. But 
with the Apollo artifacts, I've gotten very good at buying low and selling high, knowing when the right times are. I've purchased things and sold them for four and five times what I've paid for them, which give you some idea of values. Something that was used in an Apollo mission and was used in Earth orbit is, I'm just thinking of a typical sort of checklist page or something, maybe worth two or $3,000. Something that was used and was in lunar orbit, maybe five to $10,000. Something that was used in the lunar module on the moon itself, ten dollars to $30,000. Something that was used on the surface of the moon, it could be fifty dollars to $100,000 or a lot more. There are iconic items that are worth many times that. I recall one particular artifact that I purchased for $7,500 and I, I sold it a year later, one year later for $75,000. Now, what's interesting to me is not only is that there are the possibility to make money in collectibles, but what I like the best about collectibles is that they are something that you can enjoy. It's something you can hold and touch. It's a piece of history. It's something you can share with your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues. Should someone go into these types of investments with the expectations of having, you know, quote unquote, market beating returns, or should they go into this more with the lens of, I'm going to buy this because I enjoy it, I want to use it, and then if it maintains its value or if it even gains a little value over time while I've been able to enjoy it, then it was a success? Or how should somebody think about that? So for me, the idea of collecting things that have value is I feel like I have the use of those things for free. What I mean by that is I can buy a vintage car. And if I'm clever about the price I pay for that vintage car, I can then use that vintage car and drive it and enjoy it for three or four or five or six or 10 years and then sell it at least for what I paid for it. And therefore, I had the use of it for free. I mean, never mind the, the value of the money that you, did, you could have put somewhere else. Or most likely, if you're clever about when you buy and when you sell, maybe you'll make some money on it. And I think in some cases, maybe you can make a lot of money. In my case, I have made a lot of money on certain things, but other things I've just sort of maintained. Um, with the vintage wristwatches that I collect, I've never made any money on them, but I've enjoyed them. I'd rather wear an interesting watch and have a couple of other interesting watches in my safe that I can wear than having that bit of my money sitting in some account somewhere, or there's another zero somewhere that, you know, that appears on a statement. So that's just for me personally. So I think, number one, the more you know, the more you study, the more experience you have, the better you're able to buy and sell cleverly. And number two, come at it from the perspective of thinking of a collectible as a beautiful object that you can enjoy essentially for free. And then maybe you'll make some money on it too. I think it's important to note here too that we're not recommending allocating a huge percentage of your portfolio here. David, this has certainly been a very interesting conversation from digital marketing to alternative investing and everything in between. Where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about all that you have going on? ApolloArtifacts.com if you want to take a look at my collection of stuff from the Apollo Lunar Program. More about the book is at www.fanocracy.com. 
some uh, videos and some other resources on page and really cool stuff for entrepreneurs or people who maybe want to jump into the entrepreneurial world. On Twitter, I am DM Scott. That's D-M-S-C-O-T-T. I'll be sure to put links to everything we talked about in the show in the show notes. And I'll also include links to David's social media platforms and his new book, Fanocracy. David, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.